Welcome back to following Noadon, a Stormlight podcast. Even though I don't think Noadon ever came to Kamashi, but it's fine. We the, do not know that. We the, do not know that. That's true. Absolutely. You have a great point on it. Wow. Yet to be proven, as we like to say on this podcast. Yes. Episode 161, we're talking about the entirety of Nicaro and the Stone Stacker. Paul, how are you? I'm great. I'm, I always love doing our book, basically our book reviews over these books, and I think it's one of my favorite episodes that we do. So I'm really looking forward to this, and we have a very different type of book to talk about this time, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. Elliot? I'm also doing great. always love these uh, these episodes as well. I also just, you know, it, it's a satisfying feeling going through a book, especially at the pace that we do. When when you kind of go a little slower and methodically through a story, it's it's really satisfying to get to the end and look back at the the journey we've taken, which this was another very enjoyable one. So feeling satisfied. I agree. I don't know why I feel this way, but I always feel that a normal episode, I am more organized and then on these episodes i can it's more of like a laid back relaxed posture in my chair we're just talking about a book and all we all we have to do is just talk about how we feel we don't really have to i don't know point out anything specific or anything like that um if you are joining us for the first time on this episode for some reason the way we format these entire book wrap-ups are we each rate the book and then we're going to go through a couple key points on why we rated it the way we did and then we're going to talk about the book as a whole what we thought of it uh did we enjoy what brandon sanderson did with it that type of thing um let's roll intro Trevor, you might want to also talk a little bit about the spoiler scope if if anyone is jumping straight to this episode yeah um I will, yeah, we, we've read the entirety of the Stormlight Archive and one book of Mistborn. Don't don't ask me why we have, that's where we're at, but that's where we're at. Um, and 64% of Arcanum Unbounded. Um, so all of... And Warbreaker. And Warbreaker. I, it, I kind of grouped that in Stormlight Archive because it's... That's fair. Spoilers, kind of stormlight adjacent. Um. Anyway, so any of those spoilers are on the table if you haven't read any of those. Let's roll intro, and then we will start with Paul for ratings of the book. after you all right i'm excited to talk about this one i have some kind of polarizing thoughts here um going down the list we're talking about plot characters world building theme and point of view um and we'll just go right down the list we graded all these on a scale of one to ten ending in a total score of out of 50 um so for plot I set an 8. 8 out of 10. 
I really enjoyed the plot. I, I like how it was a romance book, a cute romance book, but not really. It it was it was action centric. It was mysterious. We saw a lot of different things, um, and it really had something for just about anyone. Um, and I really really enjoyed it. Um, so I thought the plot was really enjoyable, and I like how it was kind of sneaky with it. I'm I'm not a fan of romance books, uh, romance novels at all, uh, but. This was the coolest version I've ever seen of of something like that. It it was sneaky with it. It it was kind of, you know, cheeky in how it how it got there and how it It's almost like Brandon pulled a fast one on me. It was like, "Whoops. Haha. It's actually these two characters are falling in love, you know." Um which which I thought was actually really funny and a really cute way of doing it. Um so so I enjoyed that. For characters, I gave this an 8 out of 10. I thought the characters, I thought our main two characters were done fantastically. Yumi and Painter, I think, were awesome. Um, but the only reason that I took points away from this was for the supporting cast of characters, the the, the more minor characters. I never felt like I got a clear picture. Well, well, some of them I could clearly envision, but then I didn't feel like they had much of a role in the story. Okay. And then there were characters kind of on Yumi's side of the story that I feel like were supportive to the story itself, but then I never got a clear picture of, if that makes sense. All in all, I, I that was the only thing that drew that score down for me was uh, characters like Tojin and Akane and stuff. I feel like they didn't really have all that much. You know, they they interact with our characters and things like that and have a specific character trope but maybe didn't add as much i know understand also that this is a short shorter book so there's only so much time you can't go into every character but all in all that's why i i gave it this the score that i did um moving on to world building this one i did give a perfect 10 out of 10 i thought i thought the world itself was interesting which you know you could talk about world building as more of a, a hard skill of, of which which he does fantastically. Brandon Sanderson does fantastically here, but also I, I was just engaged in the world. I, I thought it was really cool the dichotomy of the two uh, lives that we see, um, and then I thought it was really interesting how he brings it up. How it's kind of like completely unknown strangers end up connected to each other. And they're just being drugged throughout each other's different worlds. One is way too hot. One is way too cold. And just all these things um, that are just polar different and how they learn about them through force, through necessity almost, was an interesting way of doing it. And he just, Brandon Sanderson, just delivered that so well. Moving on, I've been uh, having some high scores, but this is this was my lowest one, actually, was was the theme, kind of the the message, if you will, of the story. Um, the reason I gave this a 5 out of 10. The reason I had this much lower than the rest, um, I think it was um, a great... I think it was a great and enjoyable story. The plot was super fun and enjoyable, uh, but there wasn't much, I feel like, of a message to take home with this. Um, I feel like sometimes whenever you judge a fantasy book by its theme, I feel like that can seem unfair at times because 
sometimes it's it's just a fun book to read and enjoy a story, you know. Um, which I think was kind of the case here. As far as an actual take home message with it, I feel like it um had this idea of freedom for Yumi or freedom to choose what you want to do. Um, which was a neat message. However, it didn't I feel like it didn't send all that much. Um I, I I mean personally I like a lot of fantasy books where it's more working working toward a greater cause, I guess. Um and I feel like this made it instead of me as an individual it was um more self centered, I guess, than that. So that's the only reason that I, I lowered my, my theme score there. And last but not least, we have point of view. Um, I think Brandon Sanderson did an excellent job of writing and how he balances the two different point of views and the polar sides of the coin here. Um, I gave that a 9 out of 10. All in all, for a total score of 40 out of 50, or 4 out of 5, if you want to reduce that down, um, I thought it was an excellent book. I, I would recommend it to lots of people. We'll talk about later whether it may be a more seasoned Cosmere reader book recommendation or a first-time reader. I have interesting thoughts about that. So all in all, that's my that's my scores. So I'm curious to to hear y'all's next. Uh, Trevor, I don't know if you want to do yours next. Sure. I'm adding first-time reader discussion to the outline. Give me one second. Okay. So, you mean the Nightmare Painter. As I go through my score here, I'm going to reference a couple of the same points where I docked it in in several different ways for kind of the same reason. Um and I'm just going to preference it with I think two I think 3 fourths of this book was stellar. Some of the best Brandon Sanderson writing we've we've had ever. I th and as I go through this, I might talk myself out of some of these or in like reinforce my idea here. Um, but we'll we'll see. I think he dropped the ball on a couple things. Um, and with that said, plot I put six out of ten. With the micro story of Yumi and Nakaro, I think is great. I I think what they teach each other, how they fall in love with each other, how they how that story progresses is fabulous. I think everything around them, the the machine, um Leon is is a weird one which I'll get back to here in a little bit. I think some of that doesn't doesn't land for me. Um I I think it, a lot of that takes away from this cute story that we had um, where it, it could have ended just with Nakaro and Yumi living happily ever after and not all of this other background stuff going on, um, which, which I'll get to. So if I was just grading Nakaro and Yumi, oh, and, and Hoyd kind of detracts from it too, but which I'll get back to in a little bit. Um, Nikaro and Yumi, I think, is a 10 out of 10 story. The book as a whole, I think, has several flaws in it, which I, I'll talk about in the general discussion. Plot, 6 out of 10. Characters, 10 out of 10. I think 
I think Yumi and Painter specifically are two of the two of the easily two of the top five characters Sanderson's ever written. Um, and I'll I'll get in more into that later. Uh, so I'll just leave that there for now. World building, I put an eight. Usually, in fact, this might be the first Sanderson book I didn't give a ten out of ten for world building. Somebody fact checked me on that, but I think this might be the first one. Um, and here's why: the ent the entire reveal that Yumi's world is fake really slapped me in the face. I felt like I was. I felt like everything that I'd been through with Yumi was then fake, which is part of the story telling me, no, like the, the, the journey was real. What Yumi has learned is real. But at the end of the story, I'm told that I'm not even sure if Yumi is real. So I, I don't know if like, as far as the world itself, I thought was great. Like you were saying, Paul, the, the light world and the dark world, um, was really compelling i enjoyed all my time exploring the world until i came up to the fact that no we're not on the star like you were supposed to think we're right next to each other and everything's fake that bothers me a little bit um i i can't i can't forgive it for that completely um i it's fine like i'll I, i'm not like hung up on it a, a lot but eight out of ten Theme. I also gave it a 5 out of 10, but for a very different reason than you, Paul. There are several things going on in this book. Nicaro's personal journey, Yumi's personal journey, their journey of both of them together, and then the worlds kind of colliding. I think he sticks the landing great on Nicaro. He learns that he is a true artist by creating art simply for himself. He doesn't need an audience great yumi learns at the end of the story that she does deserve to live for herself to be loved to have love and she is a person great the whole art versus machine thing was like completely dropped or fake or misleading like we, we i don't know if we were this is episode seven or eight or so we had this entire discussion of is this machine going to be able to summon the spirits where now we know that entire discussion was not worth having because if we just did these wrap-up episodes we wouldn't have even talked about it because the machine's not even real so why are why are we having this entire discussion on something that is completely dropped by the end of the book um so I, I knocked it pretty heavily for that simply because, and this, I, I say this hesitantly because a lot of people use this phrase in critiquing San Sanderson. I think Brandon Sanderson might have wasted a little bit of my time in this whole fake world thing. And people say that specifically about the way of Kings. Uh, if you're going to critique the way of Kings, a lot of people say it's too long. Just straight up. It's too long. Give me, Give me Kaladin's story. Don't waste my time. Get me to the climax where, yes, the, the, no, I don't think anybody would argue that the end of The Way of Kings is not epic and grand. 
a, a lot of people don't get there because they feel like it takes too long to get there. So, and I'm all for journey before destination. I just feel like I walked down the wrong path for no reason um, with the art versus machine thing. Five out of 10 for theme. Point of view, I give an eight. I really enjoy Hoid. Um, if I didn't, I think point of view drops real fast if you don't like Hoid. Um, I I knocked it a point for getting sat down and explained thing uh, explained to at the end of the story. Um, I I think it could have been portrayed a little bit better than just Hoid zooming out. Um, and then I knocked it another point. I don't know why. Maybe I'll put it back up tonight. There you go. 37 or maybe 38 out of 50. All right. For my scores in these same areas, I had a lot of the same thought processes and, and reasons as you guys, but I I came to different point conclusions, I think, somewhat drastically in, in some of the areas, but I'll just, I'll, I'll talk you through it. Plot, I, I give this story, You, Me, and the Nightmare Painter, 8 out of 10 on story. I... I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. So start to finish, it was it was a roller coaster, especially in the the end. It did get a bit twisty. I I stayed with it, but but I'll say just barely. I I, I do think that I got a bit as a reader there at the end for yeah reasons. But all the core elements that to be in a story were were all there. Epic conclusion, beautiful moments really interesting elements i i was never bored at any point in this story i was always very engaged i always wanted to learn more there, there were it, it was satisfying in all the elements even if it was a little bit confusing at at times maybe you could also go after this score a little bit in that was it possible to figure out the plot twists you know it's it's a little harsh sometimes when the author throws a plot twist to you that you had no possible way of seeing coming. And yeah. we we border on that. I'm not honestly sure whether we crossed it or not. I'd have to read it again. I'd have to go back and read it again and see are there are there ways you can pick up on where it's going. There might be enough. Eight out of ten, still fairly strong for me in, in plot. I, I I enjoyed it a lot. Characters completely agree especially with what you said, Trevor, some really fantastic character writing here. Really fantastic. I think Brandon is really starting to show his skill. Not he didn't before, because he did. Like, he's going higher. He, he's, he's going even beyond what he's done before and really starting to flex in that relationship side of his characters. I thought this was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Only reason I take a single point away is with a story of this length. Paul, you talked about this. You just can't get to the depth that you can in another book. And I'm I'm a sucker for the long the long haul. Give me a a five hundred thousand word book. I'm all I'm all for it. And so when there's only a hundred thousand words in the book, you just can't get to the depth of like a Dalinar or a Shallan that we we have in, in Stormlight Archive. You just don't have enough words to explore all the different aspects and journeys that they can go on. And so because it's smaller, it's always going to suffer a little bit from me in characters, although what we do have is fantastic. Although arguably really just two. Not sure whether that's pro or con. 
world building 10 out of 10 this was an easy one for me i was kind of with you trevor that 10 out of 10 is always my starting point with a, a sanderson book he's just so good at it i have docked him in other books for it i i left this one at, at 10 out of 10 I think all the negatives that you might point to in world building, I would say detract from other areas. In fact, the world building here might be so good that it hurts the plot. The world Ooh. building might be so good that it hurts the point of view. There's like what he did here with the whole surprise, you're not on another planet. You're right next to each other. I, I put that as a point in favor of the world building. It's really creative. It's really unique. It's really interesting. It all works at the end. It makes sense. I loved wrestling in my mind with the whole orbital mechanics of it all. Are we on different planets? Are in the same system? Does this even work? Oops, surprise, you were down the wrong path. It's really just this. All of that I thought was really fun and cool. Investiture is more about, you know, built into this. We learned even more about the magic systems. All of that is all positive things toward world building, although you could probably argue that it took away from other areas, but solid 10 out of 10 for world building. Theme. Theme. I went higher than you guys on theme. We we are in rather different camps here. I went with eight out of ten on on theme. And I I definitely can see arguments for the theme was a little confusing. And there were maybe too many themes. I wonder if, if he tried to bite off a little more than was digestible, chewable in a, a story like this. But what we did have, I, I really did like, especially the, the relationship part of this. The whole relationship between Yubi and Painter was really beautiful and really cool to explore and that it really got into, you know, how do you, how do you learn somebody else? How do you force yourself to see something through another person's eyes and how that ties into a romantic relationship was really cool to see, not not just the you know physical attraction or how does this other person make me feel side of relationships which i feel like is often the focus when you're talking about a romantic relationship and this was really really cool to see that dived into i i like the themes a little confusing maybe too many but i liked them point of view i i think this is where i hit this book the the, the most as far as docking points away I only took it down to seven, though, seven out of 10 for point of view and mainly for Hoyd. And I might be sounding like I'm contradicting myself from, from last episode because last episode I said that I liked the Hoyd perspective and that it worked. And I, I agree. I still think that it does work for what it is. For what this book is trying to be, I think this works. To have a, a snarky narrator who's constantly breaking the fourth wall and talking to me as a reader, and then very much so in the end of the book sits me down and gives me a, a monologue about all the things I'm confused about. It's a little bit weird, but I think it it closes. It works for the story. I don't like that as much on the whole as a more epic story, which I'm going to learn by experiencing. I, I personally like that better. I think it's more, I think it's better writing in a lot of senses and that it, it's, it's more meaningful when I have to spend 400 pages experiencing a world to figure it out, as opposed to just having Hoyd sit me down and explain it to me. So the points come down because I think it's not quite as 
well written necessarily, and I don't prefer it as much, even though for this book, for what it is, for what it's trying to be, I think it gets there. Seven, seven out of 10 on point of view, all of that sums to, I think, 42 out of 50. So we're all at four out of five stars, but we're hovering all around it. So, yeah. Okay. Where should we start? Anyone want to start somewhere specific? Let I, I, I do. Let's talk about the the twists. I want to get this out of the way. There are so many this book is very twisty. Um which is not a good or bad thing, I don't think. And Elliot, you talked about this a little bit in your ratings. I think there are some twists that is not possible to get beforehand there there is zero if next to zero foreshadowing on some twists um i'm gonna i'm gonna mention off a couple of them um the star in the sky um i i have no problem with that one on its face uh space travel like traveling to the other star hot versus cold certainly implies two different planets um the festival that yumi wants to go to um and is is mentioned several times or at least i've mentioned it several times i i latched onto it don't know if anyone else did the the scholars that show up turning out to be nightmares i'm not sure if you could ever figure that one out before it's revealed um the and the machine versus can a machine create art? We had an entire two episodes dedicated or almost dedicated to that question because the, it felt like that's a major question the story was approaching. Um, and then it turns out, nope, the whole thing's literally smoke and mirrors and um, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So do, do these, uh, and and I'm presenting these as if they bother me a lot. They don't, I don't think they, I don't think they detracted from Nicaro and Yumi. I just think they might have made me go around the roundabout, whether I could have just taken the shortcut to the story and it, and the story would have been the same. I wrote this down in my notes as I, I think a reader of this book, whether they're a new reader or an experienced reader, either way, they're gonna gonna kind of have to set aside some preconceived notions, or I, I guess the way I might explain it is, I think to enjoy this book, you kind of just have to roll with it. There's gonna be times where you just have to keep reading. Right. Don't stop and think about it. Just just keep reading. And I I think that's gonna be hard for some experienced readers and new readers alike. I think that's gonna turn some new readers away. They're gonna pick up this book and they're gonna be like, what? And then just set it down and not even finish it. Other experienced readers are wanting to analyze and dissect and predict and figure out, which is kind of what the book is leads you to try and do, right? Painter and Yumi are trying to figure out each other's worlds. So naturally, we as a reader are also trying to do the same. I wonder if that maybe hurts the experience of the book a little bit and that it feels like we weren't necessarily supposed to be figuring it out. We were just supposed to be experiencing and reading. Right. 
the fact that we stopped every three chapters or four chapters to talk about it and hypothesize might have detracted from it. Okay, yeah, I understand that. It's. I wonder if the best way to experience this book would be like on a vacation, start to finish without stopping. Hmm. Like take this book on the plane when you fly to the beach for vacation, read it in a whole weekend, start to finish. I I was thinking similarly to that, Elliot. Actually, in some of the points you're mentioning, Trevor, I feel like a lot of you, what you're saying was correct. But I was like, I wonder if Brandon Sanderson really intended for someone to sit down and read a couple chapters and try to pick it apart, right? And then read a couple more and pick it apart. Uh, specifically with what you were saying about going deliberating about the machine and then that kind of being a waste of time right mm -hmm. like you kind of find out short pretty shortly after you're introduced so it's like i it was maybe more so unfortunate that it that we stopped there and spent a lot of time which is the fun of the podcast in my opinion um but i'm understanding what you're saying of like we did all that and then there was nothing really to make of it it was just like oh not actually, you know. I, um, but I think as probably an, a normal reader, I feel like maybe that wouldn't have the same effect. I think this is interesting because had we approached this book with our normal format of I had read the entire book and you guys hadn't, it would have been very odd for me to watch you guys have an entire discussion about can a machine make art and does that matter? And, oh, the machine drew this spread. That's really important. And I would have to sit there and be like, hmm, yes, like I did all throughout Words of Radiance when you guys were talking about random stuff. So the that's very odd to me that for the first time reading a book blind with you guys that I felt backstabbed by a, a a a twist that didn't actually end up panning out to anything even though it felt like at the time like at the time it felt like that was going to be a main theme of the book was does does an artist have to or is the art the valuable thing or is the artist the valuable thing we had an entire topic discussion about virtuosity and what it's attracted to so and i feel like even well no that's i was gonna say virtuosity is kind of a um a red herring as well but it's it's not because the rock rock stacking is a still a pretty integral part and in drawing the investor away from the machines anyway i, I will say i'm at I'm impressed by Sanderson's ability to write something different. Whether whether it was a style we liked, or we can yeah argue about plot twists and whether they were appropriate, or I do think that the writing skill here is very apparent. Yeah, and a very different flavor from anything we had read before from him. And I was I was pretty impressed by that, regardless of whether you buy into the the plot itself. Yeah, I I agree. Having read as much Sanderson as I have, 
which you guys are approaching that that level the i am always impressed at the ability for him to be as diverse as he is in his writing styles um and obviously he said right when he announced the secret projects way back a year and a half ago that he he was doing these specifically to try new things um and but even in rhythm of war um and when we get there i think in the lost metal there are, in his most recent books i think there are very specific things that he tries and tries well he does he performs them well whereas he could stick to his proven good writing of the way of king's style whereas i i think rhythm of war is written in a very more mature and and different choices than even the way of kings in the same series yeah you could definitely see that he felt more free to do other things in a story he he felt free to be silly he felt free to be i don't know creative is not even the right word here he just was yeah exploring different things you, you could feel it in the in the story he didn't he wasn't limiting himself because of a grander story or a pre-built framework you know like going into stormlight 5 for example i want to say like he takes these lessons he's learned and applies them to stormlight 5 well he only goes so far with that right because he's he's built into stormlight 5 stormlight 1 2 3 and 4 and so he can't break the mold completely or it'll feel too different right this was a chance for him to just kind of yeah flex other muscles and see what happens if I lean in this direction. And I thought it was fun. It kind of reminds me of Skyward. Elliot, you've read Skyward, the first book, at least. Um, first one, yeah. It just feels like a completely different flavor than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys have a favorite character? I do. I, I think we're going to ask this. Go ahead, Paul. Oh, no, you go ahead, Elliot. I like what you have to say on this. <laughs> I I knew, I knew, of course, Trevor, that you were going to ask us for a favorite character. So as we were approaching the end of the story, I, I started like scrambling at my notes, like, who, who is my favorite character? Because I, I had a hard time picking, but not because I had a lot of favorites to pick from. It was kind of more of like a, a not a lot of favorites to pick from which is weird to say because we just talked about how well-written the characters are. Yeah. We, and they are. They really are. They're, the characters are extremely interesting, and the relationship between like Painter and Yumi is phenomenal. But do I actually like the characters? Like Personally, when you ask me favorite character, I, I kind of translate to that as, you know, who do you want to hang out with? Right. I don't know that I really want to hang out with any of these people, but... <laughs> I don't know. Yumi's pretty cool. She she is the kind of classic sacrifice herself to save the world kind of character, which I, I, I like that. I, I liked Yumi. She was kind of innocent but serious, but earnest, but caring all at the same time. It's probably Yumi. Earnest, I think, is the best word for her. Paul? So I I kind of agree with what Elliot is saying, but uh, my favorite character is Yumi. Uh, not necessarily of, 
I want to hang out with Yumi or anything like that. But uh, I guess out of the characters in this book, she she was just my favorite. Um, I mean, the other front runner. Are, I mean, I like the main characters the best. Um, and I like how Painter was ultimately written and kind of what we learn about him and his past. I thought was really, really fun. But I don't know. I, I Honestly, I think I'm trying to over-explain it. I think Yumi was just my favorite character. I thought she was cool. And, and it was really um, neat seeing her progression. Yeah. I think if you've been following along with each of our episodes, I think a lot of people will guess that I will say Nakaro here, but that's boring, so I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say design. I think design was really refreshing to have a character that Brandon Sanderson is willing to just have be completely crazy and silly and joking like the entire book, but also not get in the way. I, I think she was... she character of design did a really good job of acknowledging to seasoned readers like we are that there's more going on here but also walks the line of a new reader isn't going to be distracted by design um i i I think maybe they will and maybe we can have that discussion but probably much less than hoyd right for example like hoyd fills a similar role of kind of silly, fairly expository, but potentially distracting, whereas design was more integrated into the story and felt a little more natural. It didn't, it didn't throw you as much when design starts explaining investiture to you versus when Hoyd starts explaining things to you. That's a really good way to put it. Um, let's, let's pause with the outline here and talk about this. I was going to talk about this at the end, but we kind of just brought it up. New readers. Can you give this book to a new Cosme reader has never read Sanderson? Okay, my thoughts on this are that yes, you can. However, they would just be super confused, I feel like, about Hoyd and design. Like, Hoyd and uh-huh. design are pretty integral to what to the accreditation we have of the information we hear, right? When design is like, oh, you're highly invested. One, what does that mean if you're a new reader, I guess? And two, like, how do these characters know this? Um, I guess all that be honestly, the more I think about it, maybe it isn't for new readers. Because Hoyt is the narrator, and so much stuff that he mentions... It's important to to know know what's going on, I guess. Um, I would so I would say it's okay for a new reader from the perspective of like spoiler things. Like I think it's totally fine to read this. Um, even the memory thing, which we've mentioned before, isn't necessarily like you won't really know what he's talking about. You know, you just think the narrator's being funny, maybe. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of on the fence for me. Uh, if I had to make a decision right now, I think maybe I would say it's not for the the first book you should recommend to someone. I think it's a great, actually, I'm going to take that back. I think it's a great entry point for someone into Sanderson's writing if they don't necessarily love the, like, 
the more action adventure line that is like Stormlight or Mistborn, right? Like maybe it's for a different audience, I think, to get them interested. That would be the the situation which I think it might be best in that way. Paul, I completely agree with you. I have been wrestling with this question a ton. Is this book for new readers? Is it not? I've gone both ways over the last few weeks as I've tried to figure this out. And I think where I've landed is where you just got to, which is it depends. It depends. I think this book will be great for some new Cosmere readers. Even the stuff that that is going to get dropped on them, there's going to be references that go over their head. They don't get. Perfectly fine. There's been lots of references in Way of Kings that when we read it for the first time, we didn't get. There's even a, a section where design sits down and explains what investiture is and roughly how it works. I think for some new Cosmere readers, that will be extremely helpful. They will then take that knowledge over to other books, and it will help them get through those books because they had design tell them what investiture is to start with. I think, however, on the other side of things, if they are someone who already enjoys epic fantasy, this book will ruin some elements of, yep. for example, Wave Kings. Yep. Trevor, you and I, I think, briefly talked about this when uh, on the side. There is something to be said for the journey of discovery that is Way of Kings and like Words of Radiance and into Oathbringer. I've only read one Mistborn, so I can't really reference there, but I'm guessing it's similar. You, you spend a long time in those series figuring things out. You get told things in Way of Kings that you don't get answers about until Oathbringer. Investiture is kind of one of those things. You read the entirety of, of Way of Kings. I don't remember where exactly all, a lot of the reveals happen, but not knowing what investiture is, right? not even have a clue what investiture is. Or I remember picking up Way of Kings and even getting through the first quarter of the book, wondering if there's even magic in this world. Like That was one of my big questions. Is there even going to be magic in this world, or is it purely a swords and shields and dragons like medieval fantasy? If you've read this book first, all of that discovery will be at least somewhat shattered for you. And so I, I think where I'm landing with this is if, if it is someone who is going to enjoy an epic fantasy journey where they, they're not going to be daunted by hundreds of pages and hundreds of thousands of words, do not hand them this book first. Let them experience Mistborn. Let them experience stormlight without this knowledge first yeah however if it's someone who is daunted by stormlight and may never even pick it up this is a perfectly okay thing to hand them instead i think that's where i'm getting but i think you have thoughts too trevor what, what where did you get to same place you did so the biggest reason i would say no is because of the way of kings like you were saying, a big part of the Way of Kings is what is happening with Syl and Kaladin. The entire story is what is happening with Syl and Kaladin. What is Stormlight? What is Zeth? Why is Zeth special? Like, 
that there are so many questions like that where you'll read the prologue and Zeth's like running up walls and sucking stormlight out of spheres and he's reacting to gravity in certain ways and if you've read this book if this is your first book and you go to the way of kings there's an air of mystery that the way of kings is presenting information to you that will feel like a waste of time to you i think you, you will have the answers before you have the question in the way of kings so it's tough to to validate that problem um now that being said i think that is the only problem i have no problem with design in this book for example so some other people in the community have been saying that the fact that design is in this book is a big problem for new readers i would disagree with that i don't think it is that big of a deal to know that Hoyd has a spren if you can even get to that conclusion with the limited explanation you have in this book. I don't think that's a big problem. Um, simply because I didn't think it was a huge reveal at the end of Oathbringer. I read the end of Oathbringer that he gets a, new, a spren. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Whereas I, I do think other readers were like, that was earth shattering for them. Like, that had as much impact as the epilogue of Rhythm of War does for us, where Boyd has his memories erased, and that that changes the entire playing field for Stormlight 5. Of what does Hoyd know and what does Hoyd not know? That's a big... Like, Hoyd's always been our safety blanket, and that's removed for Stormlight 5 because we don't know what Hoyd is doing at the beginning of Stormlight 5. Now... Another another thing I would say for don't hand this book to a new Cosmic Reader is because of how much it accomplishes in one book in from a story perspective. I think there's a lot that it juggles and lands by the end of the book. And then if you go to pick up Mistborn, you're going to get a bunch of questions thrown at you and only two of them are going to be answered. Whereas opposed to this book, like all six of them are at least attempted to be answered, and I, I would say successfully. Um, I, I I would hesitate on that point. So I'm leaning no, but simply because of the investiture talks. I'd be a little hesitant to hand this to a new reader in some senses, similar to why I'd be hesitant to hand like Warbreaker to someone as their first Cosmere read in that I don't think it's very representative of Sanderson himself as an author. Yeah. In, in, in Warbreaker, we almost mean that in a negative sense. We, we say, well, don't, don't just read Warbreaker and then don't not pick up others because you didn't like Warbreaker. In, in Yumi, I would say it, we just talked about it. It's a very different kind of story for him. I'd be a little bit worried that people might read this book first and then be a bit surprised by everything else they then go read, which are very not like Yumi. Right. And so if if, if this becomes their perception of Brandon's writing style, they're going to get a very different view of all of that. And that could be a negative reader, negative reading experience to go from Yumi as your only Sanderson 
experience into a Mistborn or a Stormlight might be a bit shocking. Yeah. I I, I would, would actually be go ahead. to what you're saying, Elliot, I would actually be curious to get more like further opinions on that. So like because well I'm just thinking about it because uh my wife has read a lot of the Cosmere, almost the same as us, but a, a bit less. And Warbreaker is her favorite book. What well, well, was her favorite book until she read Trust of the Emerald Sea? So that's definitely just a, um, that's definitely just a taste, you know, like personal taste, personal preference on that. Um, but just knowing that there is that different personal preference, um, I'd be curious to hear what maybe like a larger audience thinks about that specifically. Like you were saying, Elliot, I would give this book to someone who's not read the Cosmere if I knew they won't read the Cosmere without this book. If, if, if I know for a fact they are not interested in epic fantasy, I would hand them this book. Or Skyward. I do think the worst possible person to hand this book to is someone who has read Way of Kings, but nothing else. Oh, yes. Do not do not stop in your in the middle of your cosmic experience to read this one. I would not, you know, like some of the other books you might slot them kind of along the way of other journey. Do, do not do that with Yumi. Either read it first or read it last. That's funny because that's exactly where you are, Elliot, with Mistborn. You've read Mistborn I know. 1 and we stopped for this one. And I'm sure I'll have opinions on that once I finish Mistborn, but of course I can't speak to that because I don't know what's ahead of me in the next six Mistborn books. All right. Do you guys have a favorite quote? Mine is the um, the one-liner from Yumi um, at the end of the Nakaro past reveal chapter, which I think is hands down the best chapter in the book, by the way. Um after everything that Nikaro has revealed to Yumi, Yumi just says, can we go to the carnival? I just want to hang out with you. And Nikaro comes back with, you don't even know what a carnival is. And then Yumi has the one-liner of, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're going to be there, that's all that matters. Well, and that comes right on the back of the, the big reveal, right? Right. Where we learn that Painter and his the lie that he told Right, which ma makes that moment so important. Yeah, I I think that is one of the best scenes that Brandon Sanderson's ever written. I I definitely have a favorite, and I think that if y'all have been following our podcast for a while, I think you'll think that it's funny that this is my favorite quote from the book because I feel like historically I haven't been a fan of the romance side of books i always scoff at the 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 romance moments in stormlight uh but this took a different approach it was like i've mentioned many times before um as we talked through this book it's more of an endearing subtle cute like cute and sweet thing it's not like a passionate love thing i guess you know it's it's more subtle and, and sweet and so my favorite quote is in chapter 28 it's when they're at that uh carnival which trevor was mentioning on page 335 i'll just go ahead and read it it's not long but it's like a shorter paragraph yumi he asked leaning down 
She held a finger up to still him, then unscrewed the ink jar, twisting it the correct way this time, and dipped her brush. Then she proceeded to paint a picture of what they'd just experienced, a view in the first person, looking out on the landscape below. In front of that, their hands on the bar of the ride's cab, except in this, their hands overlapped. This it was, yeah, it's, I mean, I could be all sappy and, and stuff, which I'm not going to do. Um, but it, it was really cute to see because this is where we see them, you know, the, the inkling, the, the hint of interest between our characters is now like a, an apparent, we, we know they're interested. And at this point they can't do anything about it, you know? And so Yumi, Yumi draws a picture, which is also sweet because Art is kind of painter's thing, whereas rock stacking is her thing. And she paints a picture for him of them just enjoying the carnival. Um, but in the picture, they actually get to hold hands, uh, which is something that they could not do in their little spirit forms, um, which I just think was really, really sweet. So that was my favorite quote. I had a... I had a harder time coming up with a, a quote because I didn't actually capture too many throughout this book. And I think that's just because usually when I'm looking for quotes, I, I'm looking for something that's inspirational or, you know, life-changing, which th- there was inspirational stuff in this story, but I don't know that that was necessarily the point of this book. This this isn't the way of Kings that has epic punchlines that deliver, you know, really meaty messages this was more about the the characters and their relationships and i think it was a little less quotable maybe because of that if you're going to ask me for a quote i think i'd point to an entire page which i don't want to read an entire page because it'll take way too long but page 278 will be what i forever remember this book by which is that gorgeous scene with Painter and Yumi on the tree the first time as they float up into the, the sky and they they arrive at this landscape up in the air where all the floating plants are and where the the water is just condensing in the sky and on all the plants and the sun is, you know, shining through all the water droplets and the butterflies are are flying everywhere in the air. If you've if you've listened to our podcast for an extended period of time, my normal complaint about Brandon's writing is that he doesn't describe things enough for me. I'm constantly asking, give me, give me more description. Page 278 is rare for a Brandon Sanderson work in that there is no dialogue on the entirety of page 278. That's hard to find in a in a Sanderson book, I think. It's the he he intentionally, very intentionally, he talks about this in his lectures, writes with verbs and with dialogue and things like that. And so, but but this this was the scene that that answered all of my questions. This is the scene where I finally got a like spine-tingling sensory experience of what the characters were seeing, and it was really special. If you if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and read page 278. It is I think forever I'm going to remember this book by. Yeah, that's a good one. I, when I was listening to it, 
I, as I was listening to it, I was thinking to myself, man, Elliot's going to enjoy this, this page. <laughs> it's, it, it's that obvious that it's a diversion from normal Sanderson. Anything else for quotes? Just, uh, I guess, runner up. Mentioned this last episode because that's where it happened in chapter 40. If I were to pick like an actual quote, quote from the book, the one where, where Yumi says, I am the one that nightmares fear was a, was a pretty good one. That's a good like battle cry right there. Speaking of battle cries, what did you guys think of the actual battle cry from the painters saying we are the, the dream watch? Um, I, it didn't land for me. I thought that was kind of cheesy. The dream watch was actually one of those things that I might put in the category, Trevor, that you've been talking about and that I, I ended up not caring about it. Yeah, it felt like that was supposed to be, you know, important that reveal of oh, the Dream Watch are actually just folks that got handed that position. They're not actually good at what they do or care about what they're what they're doing. And so, but but so much was all happening in that that time that even to reference the Dream Watch at all was just like, eh, okay, right. So, I thought that. Okay, so so there's there's two things here. I I think that that reveal of the the dream watch was not what people thought they were was a good reveal. Mm-hmm. But then here saying we are the dream watch, I understand that they're saying like you know, we we are you know, the idea of the dream watch, the conception of the dream watch of being like the top painters right and and really being the the final line of defense uh, against nightmares i understand that but i feel like that is lessened because we see that the dream watch is kind of lame right i feel like if it was something where the dream watch goes and they 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 are more righteous and they go and they fail and then our characters step in to that and say we are the dream watch now i feel like that would carry a lot more weight um but I feel like having, or yeah, if if you had on the honorable side with the Dream Watch is good, and then they step in and become the Dream Watch, then I feel like that carries weight. But since the Dream Watch was kind of cut off, just not good, and you just kind of have to leave it at that, then then I feel like it's kind of awkward. I feel like that doesn't carry as much weight. So, yeah, where. Where I land on it is this. I wish it had been shown and not explicitly said. I wish the Dream Watch had shown up and and had been inept. And then the painters would have had to step forward and save the Dream Watch. I think that would have been a better way to show that as opposed to just throw that line out that Tojin um, keeps rallying behind. I think there there was a little bit of a missed... Like you were saying, Elliot, it didn't really land. I didn't really care about the the Dream Watch by the end of the book. Um, so we are the Dream Watch now. Y- yes, it for the painters. I'm sure that has a, some good weight for the reader. I, I think there's something there, there's a mechanic missing there. I think for me, I could see that. All right, before we go, before we go on to where you're about to take us, Trevor, I actually have a quick question for you guys. That's mm-hmm. just an honest after finishing the book there's just a burning question left in my mind and maybe i missed it the end of the book we get our surprise happy ending which we talked about last time 
and Painter and Yumi get the noodle shop and live happily after. I got I got stuck on something that I can't figure out. Yumi has come back from being a spirit being and is now physical being. That's what it says Correct? in the book. Okay. Does she age? Or is she still her like ageless investiture powered? She's not actually a physical being, she's just there permanently. I, I I got stuck on like I just can't help but imagining now that Yumi is now permanent but still spirit and therefore doesn't age. So now Painter's gonna get all old and live a life while Yumi stays nineteen the whole time. Which I don't think is the intention of that, but that seemed that's where I was left. I yeah, I could certainly see how you would get there. I'm not sure if there is an answer in the book. And I would just assume that she that, that that's not the case that she is resumed to where she was when she died 17,000 years ago or 1700 years ago and is resuming as normal person now the mechanics of that are not spelled out at all and I think deliberately so I think we're just supposed to gloss over that and they live happily ever after um, but uh, yeah it's, I don't know good question and I don't know might save this one for like a Brandon Q&A somewhere. I'm really curious. Is is she now a fully physical being that is just kind of entered into the picture at age 19 and continues living and aging and all of that normally? Or is she still the spirit being? Like, did, did she die 1700 years ago and this is now spirit Yumi still? She's just permanent. I want I want to know. I feel like that, that raises a lot of you know she, the fact that she's there so long for seventeen hundred years, right? I assume plays into that she is so highly invested, but I feel like we still don't know specifically how invested. And so I feel like that would be right. a question we need to know to kind of look into that. And then, well, to secondarily answer your question, it's is she still invested, or did she? "Quote unquote," spend said investiture to become human again. Hello. All right. Now that we're done with the book, what do you guys think of Cosmere implications moving forward? Did, was there anything like earth shattering in this book that you're like, "Wow, that's." really crazy for going back into Mistborn next week or going back to Stormlight next year. Was there anything that you guys took out of this book um, that you really liked or really caught your attention? I think in the... order to answer the Cosmere implications question, I want to know more solidly about the timeline. Okay. Where in the timeline is this story happening? Because if this is way down the line, then hard to tell. This is shortly after a Stormlight 5, maybe, then I think there could be more that we could tie to. I'm, I'm specifically thinking, I'm still stuck on one very small thing that Masaka, is that her name? Masaka, the, um, the sleepless, mm -hmm. that she said was 
I'm here to hide. I'm hiding. I'm, I'm stuck on that. Why is one of the most powerful beings we've seen in the Cosmere yet hiding from something? I, I want to tie that back to some kind of Cosmere-wide event has happened and such that a sleepless is trying to flee. And then I immediately follow that up with, you know, Boyd wasn't really explicit about why he's there either. Right. Design says something about, oh, we were just, you know, checking out the planet. Like, um, okay, why? Uh, are you, are Hoyd and Design also fleeing something or hiding from something? I, I'm, I'm curious if this is happening within like a decade or less after the events of Stormlight 5, could that point to some kind of cataclysmic type event happening in Stormlight 5? Okay. My, my two big questions, also one of them had to do with a one-liner, that not the same one that you're talking about, Elliot, though, is the Fabriel that Design pulls out to check out Yumi. She has this Fabriel, like an MRI scan, that can look at her connection and maybe influence it. That wasn't clear, but the capital C connection is seems to be more than just a bondsmith thing at this point. Um, so that's an interesting caveat to move forward with. Second one is. How did design leave Roshar? We've we've been. I don't know if this is specifically spelled out in the book, but I think that Spren are supposed to stay on the planet, either in Shadesmar or physically on the planet. And however she got off Roshar, does that imply that Kaladin and Sil could leave the planet at some point? Pattern and Shalon at some point? Like what? What is? How did how did design leave? That would that's a big question that I have moving forward. That is actually a really big question. I didn't actually think about that. Um, my prediction, which just makes sense in my brain, it's not really a great prediction, is I wonder if it's some kind of bond that's like tied to being a like fifth ideal night radiant, effectively. Okay. Like, like once you reach a certain level, almost like a certain level of heightening, right? But on Roshar, if then there's like the capacity for that, maybe maybe Ooh. the Nile bond, the way it works, changes, you know, and there could be things like that. Yeah. So taking that one step further, what if by the fifth ideal, you're no longer tied to the system; you're just tied to your radiant, and you and your radiant can move together, like. Your, your radiant has ascended so highly that they imitate the 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 shard honor or whatever or or tying that even more directly to connection maybe spren have to have that connection to roshar in order to exist but if they get to a certain level of connection with their radiant now that connection to their radiant can replace that connection they had with roshar and sustain them elsewhere right yeah, I like that a lot, Paul. Yeah, same. Connection in particular. We we knew this was going to be the the case even pretty early on in the book when connection started to 
be mentioned. We knew connection was going to be a big part of this story, and it was. Hoyd, in one of his Hoyd's Blaine moments at the end of the book, made an interesting comment about when you when you manipulate connection, when you mess with spiritual connection, you can sometimes create irregularities, mm. was the term that he uses. Basically playing it, hey, when you mess with connection, weird, unexpected things can happen. And he was specifically referencing the like body swap that happened with Nicaro and Yumi. That is not what the spirit that linked the two of them together intended to happen. That was just a weird irregularity due to the connection. I take this now and apply this to our bondsmith, Dalinar. We just left Dalinar at the end of Rhythm of War where he's starting to understand what connection is and starting to maybe dabble into the world of manipulating connections. He just had an interesting interaction with Ishar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The name of the Herald. Yeah. And Ishar, basically, I don't remember exactly what all went down there, but basically it was like, yeah, you don't know if you're messing with bro and heads off to do his own thing. I, I guess my takeaway from this is Dalinar beware. Careful what you start messing with. If he starts to try and like, Try out those powers of a bondsmith in order to manipulate connection. We could see some irregularities start to pop up on Roshar. And it's not just Dalinar. We have two bondsmiths by the end of the book. Uh, Navani is our new. That's true. Right. Bondsmith. Right. I'll be curious to see what. This is really going into full Stormlight thing, so I'll keep this thought brief. Uh, but I'm curious, now that we mentioned it, what if Navani and Dalinar get to confer with each other? Navani is going to learn a lot out of the gate as a bondsmith compared to Dalinar, who had to kind of learn from the get-go, learn on the way, I guess. Right. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of new thoughts and things that uh, Navani can bring to the table with the information that she's going to be presented and the sibling, right? Like the sibling, uh, what different things that we learned from him? Like we learned stuff from the storm father, but that is all, all Stormlight, And this is a Yumi wrap up chapter or uh, episode, but. And I think change, changing topics is kind of from a, reader perspective, not necessarily like a story theorizing perspective i think it's important for brandon sanderson that this book worked the way it did um i think there's some really good things that he could learn from this book specifically like character reveals uh the nakara character reveal i think is the strongest part of this book um and i think it's important to recognize that big reveals like that don't need to be like epic or grand or you know insert big stormlight spoiler here they can be personal and the reader still has a good reaction to them i think that's a good thing to move forward into other cosmere books with um because i really enjoyed that reveal and i think that's a good thing to apply to you know maybe a, a shalon ideal in the future or something like that I think you have a really good point with that, Trevor. I like that. Not everything has to be groundbreaking, new, 
Cosmere information. Right. But just simply something that really catches the reader, you know, can catch the us right. So. And that, that's a really good idea because Brandon could do those kinds of things in like a Stormlight 5. I talked before about, you know, there's a lot of things out of this story that you couldn't really go apply to a Stormlight book because you'd, you'd, you'd break the structure of what you were building to up until that point. But leaning into some more impactful and meaningful character moments probably is something he could do. I am, every time I read a newer Sanderson book, I'm always impressed at how much better he's getting at personal characters. And that's, I, and I would even say that's one of his strengths from the get-go from the early Way of Kings was how personal and real his characters are. But I think he's getting better at it, not plateauing. And think about the character we're about to, this is more Stormlight stuff, so I'll also try and keep it brief. But think about where we're heading with, with Stormlight 5 into Zeth's story. Ooh, yeah. Think about if, if if he could if he could really bring some of these impactful, emotional, character driven moments, I could absolutely see that working well with who is already a very impactful, emotional at times character in Zeth. I'm glad you said that. That has me instantly grinning yeah. with hope. Yeah, uh, you're you're so right, and that is something that I mean is just really. It's really gonna solidify uh, so much for me on 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 book five, right? Like, there's so much to deliver on. I I feel bad for Brandon Sanderson because there's so much he has to try and do a good job on, you know. But you're right. He he's like even still, we, we've even seen him improve as an author. This is coming from someone who's very much not a good writer myself, but you know, like like being able to see him improve and and how well he writes the characters is just so. Um, gives gives so much hope for for just where it's all going. So, and I love Seth, so I'm excited. Anything else, gentlemen? I'll I'll just say this was a this was a fun roller coaster to take a, a quick ride on. We we were talking about this this book is fairly short, but it didn't really feel like that at times. There was a lot packed into this fairly short novel, but it was very enjoyable. It was very enjoyable. I agree. I also really enjoyed it. We will be reconvening with Mistborn, The Well of Ascension, episode one, next week. Um, so if we, or if you've been waiting for us to continue Mistborn, we're back to that next week. We are doing our darn best to be Cosmere Current by Stormlight 5 and the clock is ticking so with that being said thanks for joining me for Yumi and the Nightmare Painter gentlemen and anyone listening I appreciate each and every one of you thanks for joining me Paul and Elliot one word Etcha on the flippity flip <laughs> <laughs>